Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is the Akhavanic Beaker Burial Project Part 3, I think, right? Part 3, yeah. Today we have the return of Maya Hool of the Akhavanic Beaker Burial Project, with hot off the press new information on the BHP's favorite ancient Scot, Ava. Yeah, all week there have been releases, and as you're looking at this episode and listening to this episode, chances are if you go onto bbc.co.uk, you'll see articles on this material. So it's really exciting. And what this is is that we now have the results of Ava's DNA analysis. So DNA analyses like this are blowing open the fields that deal with ancient people and prehistoric people. This is just the very beginning of what's going to come in terms of the breakthroughs and the detail on what our ancient and prehistoric ancestors were doing back in the day. Yeah, my understanding is this is going to lead us to Jurassic Park eventually. Uh, not even a little bit, but it's still very interesting. And that is why we were so excited to have Maya back on. And she's going to walk us through all of the results today. All right, let's get it going. So tell us a little bit about how did this final stage of the Ava project get started? I understand that it was part of a bigger project that Ava was sort of wrapped into. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, it's just been uh, published this year. Actually, it was a big piece of work that was led by a guy called Inigo Olaldi from Harvard Medical School. And uh, the Harvard Medical School have been uh, working in collaboration with the Natural History Museum in London on a big sort of Wellcome Trust funded project that's been looking at um, DNA for the Beaker people, but they've also been looking at individuals from before and after and making some comparisons. So Ava was included in the study. Uh, she was the most northerly example included in the study. Um, and yeah, she's um, she's a part of that and has contributed to that. But we were really lucky that the researchers were actually able to do um, a little bit more in-depth research for us and find out a little bit more about her, which uh, we have now published. So again, uh, listeners who are coming to the project through us can go to our website and get a direct link to that paper. I'm interested, so I sort of, I can get that this is a, there was a bigger project going on, and when you're doing DNA, you you it's often interesting on a population level when you're especially talking about ancient DNA projects. Yeah. So Ava's a, a data point in that. But for you, you're focused on Ava. Why were you initially interested in sampling her DNA? And what can DNA tell us that other archaeological evidence can't? So ancient DNA, I guess, it's it's the genetic building blocks that sort of make a person a person. And just the level of information that you can get from ancient DNA, there's, there's no other technique that archaeologists currently are using that can reveal quite so much information. And I think myself, like many other archaeologists, we're just starting to wrap our heads around what it actually means and how it's going to sort of revolutionise our understanding of this uh, stage in prehistory. So yeah, at, at the moment, ancient DNA is being used to explore ancestry, uh, appearance, migration, and so much more. Um, and uh, yeah, we've uh, we've managed to get really good results for Ava, and it's managed to sort of recreate our understanding of what she looked like and where she was from. And before we get to the details, uh, I just want to know, could you tell us a little bit about how the DNA was actually sampled from Ava? Because for us, if I want to do 23andMe or some sort of ancestry thing, I just, I take a swab of the inside of my cheek or I spit in a bottle or I might even take a blood test. But she had no saliva left and she had no blood left. So how do we do this yeah. with an ancient individual? Okay, so um, what 
what we do is we target a bone that's called the petrous bone. Now, if you put your fingers just behind your ears and then you imagine that there's like a, a line between the two, that bone in the middle, that's that's part of your inner ear and it's really, really thick. And this is what's been found to be the best place to target for samples. It, it tends to give exceptional results because it, it has really good preservation. So yeah, so that's where we targeted. We're really lucky for Ava that that bit of um, her, her skeletal structure survives so yeah so they they, they took a, a tiny little sample it's maybe two or three millimeters across and maybe half a centimeter deep it's a really really small amount of bone that they actually need to do the analysis and then it sort of gets ground down and um, run through all of these extremely technical processes to uh, get this information. Um, One of the things they're really concerned about is looking for modern contamination and checking for authenticity. So with Ava, um, we got a really low level of contamination, which is really good. And then, as I say, they go on to do these really highly technical processes that I'm not going to pretend that I understand in great detail. (laughs) What's so exciting for me to hear is that what we need to sample the DNA of ancient remains is now so small because when I was back I think it was like 10 years ago now when I was doing my own degree in like physical anthropology and archaeology they really had to destroy fairly large parts of the sample in order to get to some of the DNA hoping that it was there and then sometimes it wouldn't even be there you just destroy what sample you had what osteological evidence you had for nothing it's so exciting to me that we can retain the osteological integrity of our evidence and still get this DNA evidence at the same time. I just want, I don't think many of our listeners will know that that's part of the advancement here and that Ava's probably a part of that. Absolutely. And I'm sure that, you know, for the last couple of decades, it's taken them a while to figure that out. I know, um, like comparatively with radiocarbon dating, when um, Ava was first dated in the very early 90s, they had to use an entire femur bone from her leg um, to get the radiocarbon dates. Um, And then when they redid the samples last year, they just needed tiny, tiny samples. So it's amazing how technology evolves over time. And I guess by, you know, with the ancient DNA, by taking all of those samples and then eventually figuring out that actually the best place to get a sample is from the petrous bone, they now know where to target. And that's the wonder of um, of the advances in science, yeah. And you mentioned that we were lucky enough that the sample wasn't contaminated, but in addition to that, how successful was the sampling of Ava? So yeah, it was a pretty good sample. We got around 40% of the DNA sequence that aligned with the human genome. I'm not sure about other samples that were taken as part of the larger project or how many were done in total. I think there was around 226 individuals from the Beaker period sampled, but 400 in total that were included in the study. But beyond that, I know that there were other individuals that were sampled that we didn't get the, the evidence for. I think there was another around a handful from Scotland that were sampled that we just didn't get any evidence. So we were really, really lucky that Ava was actually one that we did get results for because it meant for for our project, the Akavanic Beaker Burial Project, we could get even more data that's, uh, that we were looking for. And so now that we've got the ultra nerdy, crunchy technology part out of the way, let's finally get to the results. The first finding is, it feels a little obvious, but it's something that we always have to ask. And it's actual sexing of the body. Was Ava actually Ava or was Ava actually Adam? 
A very good question, yes. And something that actually, I mean, the original evidence that we have um, that had suggested that Ava was female is we looked at the osteological evidence, but her pelvis bone had been destroyed. It has deteriorated over time. So we couldn't actually use that for sexing. There are other markers on the body that you can use, um, but without the pelvis bone, you can't be 100% sure because that tends to be the key marker. So yes, we wanted to look for the genetic sex just to make sure that Ava was Ava and yeah it came up um, with what we were hoping for and matched that yes uh, Ava was Ava. So how we do this is when we look at the sample we compare the number of DNA that, that align with the X and the Y chromosomes. So I'm sure many of your listeners will know this but um, females have two X chromosomes and males have an X and a Y and with Ava it came back as completely X. So that means that um, when we're trying to look for that ratio between X and Y, if we don't have a ratio to compare, she's, <laughs> she's female. So so yeah, so that was uh, good to know because as well, in, on top of the osteological evidence, um, the, the way that she had been buried, what we're seeing across the Beaker tradition in the British Isles is that there is uh, certain styles that are being used for men and for women. And Ava as well fell into that category of women. So it sort of confirmed what we were looking for, but but it's always good to have that sort of concrete evidence. And remind me what that difference was. Women were being buried facing a certain direction and men another direction. Is that correct? Yeah. So women tend to be buried lying on their right hand side, men on their left hand side. Both um, male and females tend to be facing south, southeast. But women have their head in the west and men have their head in the east. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's quite, um, if you know what you're looking for when you see um, a burial, you can see start to say okay this looks like it's typically going to fall into the female category or the male category that's fascinating so one of the second findings had to do with ava's genetic history and that's having to deal with what's called her mitochondrial haplogroup yeah and before we understand what ava's mitochondrial haplogroup group is what is a mitochondrial haplogroup. Okay, so there's different different types of haplogroups. The the mitochondrial tends to be, uh, well, it's what you get from your mother's line, so that's sort of matriarchal DNA evidence. Uh, For the the male line, that's the Y DNA, um, the the Y uh, Y chromosome haplogroup. So yeah, with Ava, we were able to explore her mitochondrial DNA, um, so that evidence from her mother's line um, quite a bit further. So what did this tell us about Ava's ancestry, or at least down her mother's line. So as I understand, uh, to be clear, that this one's passed down from mother to mother to mother to mother. Um, You don't really get this bit of DNA from your father. So you'll get a straight line for that part of your history. It's not that everyone else doesn't exist in your family tree. We just have evidence of this line. Yeah, so so kind of how it works is the best way to sort of, dis- or the best way that I've heard it described is a sort of ancestral clan or a large family group that you are descended from. And for Ava's maternally inherited haplogroup, what we find is that she fits into a category that's um, been named H5. Now, this group of um, sort of individuals has been estimated to have originated uh, around 12,000 years ago in the Near East, and they are first seen sort of moving into Europe from Anatolia, sort of as Neolithic farmers around 6,000 years ago. And so remind me when when Ava was dated to. So Ava herself, she's been dated to her approximately 4,250 years ago, which is um, what in 
we have a very short chalcolithic or copper age in in the in the UK. Um, so it could either be that chalcolithic copper age or it could be the early Bronze Age. In terms of beakers, um, it's hers is sort of a very early style, not the earliest style, but sort of in that earlier um yeah earlier date range and so that doesn't actually leave a lot of time between that six thousand year number and when she's in the uk i mean not a lot of time geologic level two thousand years is a long time for everybody in actual human terms but when we imagine people staying on the in certain parts of the continents for ten thousand years Mm-hmm. This is much shorter than that. I just that was a surprise to me looking at the at the paper. Yeah, so I suppose it's less than two thousand years between her ancestors sort of coming from into Europe, living within Europe, and then migrating further further west into into the UK. And so that's the mitochondrial DNA, which tells us about the maternal line. But I know that you found other evidence in regards to Ava's ancestry. Could you tell us a bit about that? What we find when we've looked across her whole genome is that so she fits within this um, bell beaker associated population from across Europe. But what's really interesting is that she has noticeably different DNA to the Neolithic population that had been living in that part of Scotland before her. And we know this because we've taken samples from Neolithic skeletons found in Caithness. And we can see that Ava has no DNA that matches or very, very little DNA that matches with that local population. So what this suggests is as I said in, in the uh, the first podcast we did, we have evidence from our stable isotope analysis that suggests that Ava was born and raised locally in Caithness, but it looks like her close ancestors, so maybe her parents or her grandparents, had only arrived into um, into Caithness area a few generations before she was born. And it looks likely that she, uh, so her ancestors, both on her mother's and father's side, have originated in continental Europe, sort of northern Europe, possibly somewhere like the Netherlands. The clarity of the image here is just astounding to me. So not only are we able to tell, oh, this is a local girl, we're able to tell this is a local girl who's also maybe a first or second generation immigrant to the area. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what the DNA is telling us. I know people who know less about their own family <laughs> and everyone's alive than, than what we're getting for Ava here in terms of personal story. It's so exciting. It is, yeah. We're also able to know a little bit more about her diet. So we can all test this for a living person, but sometimes it doesn't show up if you do a sample on an ancient person. And it has to do with their ability to drink milk for the entirety of their lives. So we can all, we all come out as infants, we can all drink milk or else you're in big trouble. But after that, for many people, your ability to break down milk goes away. It's sort of, it's a quality you have in infancy. And so lactose tolerance and intolerance is something we can test for in the DNA. It is. I understand that you got that for Ava. We have, yeah. So really interesting for Ava and what it looks like for most of her contemporaries is that she was lactose intolerant. So she wouldn't have been able to process things like milk, but she would have been able to process sort of processed dairy products. So things like potentially fermented milk or maybe some types of cheese, or if they had products like yogurt, they would have been able to to consume that. But really interesting because she's part of a community that are clearly 
farming cattle. And for us today, the dairy industry is what we primarily associate with the, the you know the cattle farming industry. But they just wouldn't really have been consuming it in the way that we consume it today. So that was she looked very similar to her community as far as we know it in terms of her ability to uh, break down milk as as an adult. And what's interesting to me there is that that's really different from modern Britain. Modern Britain, I think the lactose tolerance levels are probably in the 90s percent. A, a lot of people of European ancestry are actually surprised to learn at all that lactose intolerance is like the basic state of humans. Lactose tolerance is something that we've evolved over time. And to me, Ava, not only her lactose intolerance, but the fact that it sounds like that's pretty normal for the beaker people. That suggests to me that that's an even more recent development than we previously thought. When I was going through my degree, they were talking about how lactose tolerance probably had developed maybe in the 30,000 years ago, or at least 20,000 years ago, not within 4,000 years. That's very rapid. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It just shows how quickly um, we can evolve, I guess. How, I'm sorry to jump in, how does (laughs) Ava's lactose intolerance connect to other people who were were not recent immigrants to Britain. Like when we're talking about Britain having a high tolerance for for milk later on, is that a reflection of the group of people who were already there? Cuz that you were kind of just making the assumption that it was a uh, yeah, recent. I guess what I my guess um and my correct me if you know better, my guess is that this is part of what these ancient DNA projects are trying to figure out is whether or not these are migration or rapid evolution. Currently, as I understand it, what the assumed driver for lactose tolerance would be is that it's something that helps through especially lean times. If you're uh, raising cattle, raising goats, raising something that's you, you can milk, and you're able to milk those animals during lean times without killing them, or you can get through a bad harvest, that's a huge advantage. Right. So if it's a group of people may well have already existed uh, at the time of Ava that were lactose tolerant, that would have been amazingly advantageous. More children would have gotten through lean times. So it right. could spread very quickly. Okay. okay. What about the, and we may not know yet, or you may not know yet, which is fine, but I'm curious, do we know the lactose tolerance of the Neolithic population, the population that Ava's group would have been interacting with as they came into the island? I don't know the answer to that, but that would be really interesting to find out. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, it's a really different group of people that have come in before and they would have been farming cattle as well. I mean... Potentially, but yeah, the results are different, but I, I do not know the answer to that. Part of the question about lactose tolerance is not just about, you know, what kind of resources are they able to tap into during lean um, and rich times, and therefore, you know, how healthy are their children going to be? But it also does, yeah, tell, might tell us something about migration patterns. Yeah. Um, who's, are, are groups coming in or simply replacing? Are they intermixing and, and then just, you know, robust genes kind of come to the top? And then when did these kind of adaptations that we are take for granted now, when did they even show up at all? Uh, that's what these ancient DNA projects really tell us, and not just on this individual level, but this population level that Ava was a part of. That's why she was just that one data point, this bigger project. Um, it's because it's when we get that many group that we can start to see the real picture of what happened. Yeah, it's really exciting. It is, absolutely. And I would say that if anybody is interested, the paper that has been published in Nature earlier this year is free for people to go and have a look at. It's called The Beaker Phenomenon and the Genomic Transformation of Northwest Europe. I really like how academics like to sex up their titles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, I 
do want to just point out, if, if my understanding of that paper was suggesting that there actually was a bit of a replacement of the Beaker people came in and very little of the Neolithic population that was there before ended up surviving into... Yeah, so so what they did is they, they looked at the DNA that ma- for the, the Neolithic population that lived in the area before. They looked at the DNA for the um, the, the Beaker people um, migration and then they looked at the populations that came after that and to see what percentage of the people living afterwards were made up of the Neolithic population and the Beaker people population. And what they found that there was actually a 90% replacement in Britain in the British gene pool just within a few hundred years of uh, you know only 10% of what that Neolithic population before was continued uh, through the through the DNA line. Which is just insane. A lot of people will go into having heard something like that, such a radical transformation, and sort of assume an immediate story of sort of conflict between groups, um, which is possible. With, mm-hmm. But I just want to point out here before everyone convinces themselves that that's the story. That's not necessarily how it has to happen. Things like disease can wipe out a population. Uh, Things like just normal DNA advantages that sit in your genes that allow people to survive a little better than the Neolithic population would have that happen. It can be quite passive. Yeah, there's there's also this sort of aspect that it's really hard to tell. Yes, there's that sort of 90% replacement, but it's also, was that, you know, lots and lots like a huge quantity of people coming into the country or was it that there was a smaller number of people who sort of went round and sort of spread their genes shall we say quite widely you know it's it's really hard to tell from the evidence which scenario it is but I would say with 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 Ava because we're seeing that both on her mother's and her father's side she has dna that matches with the continent it's not like um you know her father came over um on a crazy stag night or something and uh, decided to stay and fell in love with a local woman it's you know it's a couple that have come across together um uh who are you know part of this sort of group i just i want to bring that up because we in the normal podcast we're often talking about how we've had this history where people either lean on historical written evidence too hard without, while ignoring contradictory archaeological evidence, or they'll do the opposite. And, and really, you need to, you want them to talk together. And if they're telling a complicated story, then it suggests a complicated story. And we're moving into this new era where DNA is going to be available to us as part of our evidence. And I'm already seeing some people want to privilege DNA evidence yeah. as if it tells the fourth story, rather than you need to say see what the DNA evidence says. Go back and see what the archaeological evidence is telling us and understand that those are both evidence that should be speaking to each other. And again, if you see a complicated story, you've got a complicated story. Absolutely. And I think archaeologists and geneticists will be, well, they'll keep themselves in work for a very long time because they're going to be debating for decades about the, you know, sort of the, the little details and what it means. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be really interesting over the next couple of years to see what happens with ancient DNA and how it re- sort of changes our perceptions of prehistory. Well, we wandered really far into population stuff, which is where I live. So of course we went there. But let's get back to Ava. Sort of the most exciting part of this little project is that we got to know more about Ava herself. Specifically, we got to learn about how she actually looked. 
Yes. And originally, part of what made Ava famous worldwide, a phenomenon is that an image was made of her, a facial reconstruction, that was just so evocative. It looked like a picture of a real person. But, of course, at the time we made all these assumptions about certain elements of her appearance that may or may not have been true, and now we can confirm it. So... What were, to start off, what were the characteristics looked for in Ava's genes that would have determined parts of her appearance? Okay, so I should say that for the original facial reconstruction that we did, what we decided to do, because we didn't know that we could even get ancient DNA results that would tell us about appearance, we decided to sort of look at the local population in that part of Scotland and sort of try and use that for inspiration of what we would have thought she would have looked like. And that's why we went with the colouring that we went with. But what we wanted to look at, and, and the reason what I really enjoyed about this project uh, is that throughout the research that we've carried out we've been trying to engage the public and with that original facial reconstruction it was really really clear to us that people felt it was really important about you know to get to get these details right about what her hair color was what her eye color was what her skin tone would have looked like so when um this larger project was being undertaken we went to the researchers and we said can you get any extra evidence that might give us indicators about what she would have looked like and remarkably we were actually man we did manage to get this data so we can now we can now say with you know high confidence what her eye hair and skin color would have been and so what does Ava, as she would have been, not as we imagine her, what did she look like? Okay, so what the results have shown is that it's most likely she would have had brown eyes, black hair, and her skin tone would have been a sort of slightly tan colour, so kind of similar to populations who live in the Mediterranean or southern Europe, so people from Italy or Spain, that, that kind of um, skin tone, which is really different to what we associate with populations in Scotland today. And this new reconstruction is again on the paper. You can find it on our website and on Mayo's website. Uh, we'll have links to it all on the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. And, you know, she's just as fascinating to, and evocative to look at as ever. But essentially, she went from What's quite funny in, in BHP land is she went from looking a bit like me to a bit more like Jamie, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what does this sort of change in her appearance, what that, or, you know, our change, what is her real appearance? What might it tell us about the bigger picture in terms of Ava's people and others on the island or on the continent? Well, I think with Ava, this is just the start of trying to figure out what people would have looked like at that time. Um, as I say, we're really lucky that this is one of very, very few samples um, of ancient DNA that have been taken from Scottish populations at this time. And in fact, maybe the only, if not I mean, there may be some that I'm not aware of, but I think she's at the moment the only individual from this time period that we actually know what her hair, eye and skin color would have been. But there's so much potential out there to start looking at this in more detail and to try and build up a bigger picture. Because we could quite easily say, okay, that's what Ava looked like. Therefore, it's likely that her whole population looked like that as well. But it's not necessarily the case that there may be more of a variety there, but you know, we don't know. So uh, let's hope that, um, you know, in the next couple of years, we start doing more research into what people on an individual level would have looked like to try and build up a picture of um, this Bronze Age community. So I'm going to put you on the spot a bit and ask a very difficult question. Okay. If we could take all of the information all together, start to finish and maybe go back to starting from maybe 
Ava's great-great-grandparents, okay. all the way up until her death, what would be her story? Okay, so I guess with her great-great-grandparents, they would have been living somewhere on the continent. Um, they would have been either early um, individuals from the Beaker people pe- period uh, or the Beaker people population. Um, her Then her grandparents or her parents decided to migrate to the UK and they ended up settling in Caithness where Ava would have been born and raised. So as a, as a young child, she, um, she was quite poorly actually. She had either some sort of nutritional deficiency or some sort of illness, but she made it through that and she grew up as to be somewhere between 18 and 25 years old. Looks like she actually had a really good diet. She was really healthy, except for the fact that for some reason she unfortunately died. Her community clearly cared about her, I think. That's my interpretation of, of what we found because most burials of this type tend to be um, placed into the soil. But with Ava, her community decided to actually excavate into solid bedrock. So they made this this exceptional um, burial for her. And it would have taken, you know, a, a considerable amount more time to do that than to create um, burials like majority of Beaker people had. So she was placed into the burial in the sort of style and layout that we discussed earlier. She was um, given uh, grave goods to take with her into the afterlife. So she has her beaker. Uh, She was given like a shoulder of beef, so food um, to take with her and some tools as well. And from the pollen evidence we have, it suggests that the sort of uh, around the burial, there would have been cattle grazing. Um, It looks likely there was maybe some Scots pine trees growing nearby. The environment would have been populated with with, um, with trees and shrubs. It would have been sort of a cross between a woodland and a moorland. Um, and then after the, she had been placed into the burial, they put a large capstone on top and covered her up. And there she stayed for 4,250 years throughout so many different periods of Scottish prehistory and history, right up to the, well, around 30 years ago when she was accidentally uncovered by two guys with a digger who uh, were very surprised to find her Um, and from there on I guess the story is what what we've discussed is the research that we've undertaken and she's now um, up in her back in the museum in Caithness where she is resting once more. I have two questions. Okay. How common or rather uncommon was this type of kissed burial because you mentioned it, it wasn't like the majority of burials but how special was it? So I've tried really, really hard. Yeah, it's complicated, this one, because the majority of burials like this are discovered when people are doing construction work. Um, It's not when archaeologists go out looking for them. So it will tend to be on land that's easy to to dig. So for the majority of burials we find, as I say, they're found in soil. And that would be typically where somebody might want to build something. People don't tend to want to build something straight into solid bedrock. But with Ava, having said that, with Ava's burial, I've tried really hard to find evidence for other burials of this type at this time period. And I know maybe of two or three others 
that might sort of fit into that kind of rock cut pit style but it's very very rare for the dozens and or possibly hundreds that have been found in Scotland and Britain uh, wide I could only find evidence for about three or four. So are there any plans to use like ground penetrating radar or other things like that to search for other kissed style burials like Ava's? Oh don't tempt me I would love to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Does anyone have lidar that Maya can use? Putting out a call now. Um, okay, and and so so if there's only like less than a handful of burials that we know of that look like this, you said that that she appears to have been well thought of by our community. Mm. Do we think that she may have been in a leadership role of some sort? Ah, oh, it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, potentially she she herself could have been. Um, maybe she was part of. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe her family members had a higher status in the community. Um, interest, yeah, it's an interesting question that. I mean, and again, it all depends on how you interpret the data because whilst I look at it and I think of this as an individual who's clearly been really loved, you could look at it differently and think, okay, they wanted to put her somewhere where there's no way she was going to get out. So it, it could be something to do with it. <laughs> people didn't I like love her. The, no, I love been, the deviant burial interpretation because I've always <laughs> thought that's been in the back of my head. It's like, well, unless she thought they thought she was some sort of vampire creature, in which case you do want to put them in solid rock because then they can't crawl out and eat you. Exactly. Um, but then, why did they include the, the the grave goods with her as well? You know, if they if they didn't, so they don't care come about out her. and eat you. Well, that's true. Yeah, keep her keep yeah. her protected and to stay with there there with the beef. Yeah, I it's, mean, yeah, it really went really fast towards the ring. (laughs) (laughs) But this just just this shows that our interpretations can vary wildly. I mean, I I do think there's I think it's sensible to go with this sort of interpretation that we've been going with. And I think a lot of archaeologists and anthropologists would take that interpretation. But our assumptions about how our culture work may not translate to these ancient cultures at all. So you always kind of have to have that in the back of your mind, that humility of this could be so beyond our imagination weird in terms of what's actually going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we will never be able to get our, ourselves back into that mindset. I mean, you think about all the stuff on a daily basis that there's around you that they would never have even imagined could possibly exist. Um, it, it's, it's crazy to to try and put yourself into that mind frame. So with that in mind, my recollection is there's no sign of any sort of traumatic death. Uh, We don't see anything that indicates violence, right? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, there's no evidence to suggest what may have caused her death at all. Okay, so based on her age and and everything, is there any way to look into whether or not she might have died in childbirth or if that might have played a role? Absolutely. You've, you've, You've cottoned on to my favorite theory. <laughs> uh, I think her being, you know, somewhere between 18 and 25 years old um, and female, I think, you know, things, as I say, things have changed so much today that things like childbirth, I guess, is still a scary thing, but we have hospitals where we can go and there's, you know, people who are very experienced and there's lots of drugs that can help get us through those experiences. But I mean, 4,250 years ago they didn't even have metal likely in this community I mean I know it's called the Bronze Age and the Copper Age but these were very rare objects so I think yeah it's probably a very dangerous thing to do Um, and I think personally based on her age and gender I think you know 
without there being any other evidence to suggest that you know she fell off some heights or um, that she was involved in an accident of some sort. There's no, you know, broken bones or anything like that. Um, but as I say, you know, it's really hard to tell. Most diseases don't leave any any indication on the body, so there's a whole range of things that could have um, been the cause of death. But for me personally. Based on her age and her gender, I think that, yeah, that's a very probable scenario. So this is basically what we know is this wasn't, this doesn't appear to be a woman who's dealing with either a chronic illness or some sort of chronic um, fragility, nor... Uh, Battle wounds. Uh, yeah, some sort of traumatic impact that left a mark on her bones. But yeah. if she died, she probably died relatively quickly in a way that impacted soft tissue, yeah. not hard tissue. Um, yeah. And it didn't impact into her bones in any way that we could see. Yeah. Um, which leaves, yeah, uh, rapid infection, some sort of nasty flu-like bug, which is they were cattling, so that's possible. We yep. know that um, disease is associated with husbandry, yeah, um, or yeah, a, a childbirth that didn't didn't go well. Yeah, well, I suppose looking at the other evidence we have, um, there's evidence from the pollen uh, residue analysis that we did for specific types of uh, species of plants included in the burial that could be interpreted as having medicinal functions. So we find evidence of uh, meadowsweet, which can be used sort of like aspirin. It can have a sort of painkiller um, effect. And also um, St. John's wort, which up until the Second World War even was being used for like staunching wounds and sort of has that antibacterial property so yeah I mean the fact that we found evidence for that within the burial and knowing that you know they were very capable of understanding the environment around them and using resources yeah again that would sort of play into a scenario for childbirth because you know having a painkiller and bleeding you know that happens in that situation so yeah, the blood staunching seems really suggestive in that case. Absolutely, yeah. Because uh, a bleed out is one of the, the biggest killers for women uh, undergoing childbirth. Yep. Well, again, we keep running to this, like, really sad. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm talking about Ava's death, and it's just like, well, that was terrible. Yeah. Um, but it was never going to be a happy yeah. ending, was it? I mean, and that's not our fault. It was written 4,250 years ago. We just, you know, we tell the story. But there may be, I mean, if we, if we, continue down this route a little bit further if we hypothesize just a little bit more and suggest that if she if she did die in childbirth there is a, always a possibility perhaps that the child did survive and that there may be our happy ending that her genes were passed on you know down down the line and perhaps there are even people out there today who are descended from Ava. And so uh, sort of on that note is there anything left for the Ava project is there something coming up next that you're working on already? I suppose all of my energy at the moment has been focused on getting this publication out. Uh, it's taken a year to get it to the stage that it's there and people can read it so uh, yeah that's sort of primarily where I've been focusing my efforts but having said that there are a couple of other sites you know, in the proximity, maybe within a couple of miles of where Ava was found, that are also bronze. 
bronze age and date um, there's one that was found in 1901 and another that was found around the 1960s and neither of these sites um, between them they have five skeletons neither of them have been really fully researched and not using the sort of modern techniques that we have been using so you know if I can convince the museums to let me have a look at them and maybe put something together it would be really great to see if we can get more evidence and build up an even bigger picture of that community at that place at that time so it wouldn't you know it wouldn't be Ava related because we've done pretty much everything we could I, I mean I said this before I had a dream list of all of the things on the list that I would like to do and we managed to do all of them which is astounding um, but it would be great if we could do that for another site as well and then start to make comparisons and build up a even more in-depth picture of that community well museums if you're listening um maya here has a great track record let her in (laughs) your archives um get some questions getting answered which and i know you you're working on something because you always are what else are you working on right now (laughs) oh you're right i am i am so um i'm actually really lucky at the moment i'm working as a research assistant on a bigger arts and humanities research council funded project called the scotland's rock art project uh, this is fantastic. Um, I have to say I love my job. I spend my days going out um, uh, with community groups and also uh, just with my colleagues to record um, these sort of prehistoric carvings that have been made, we think, in the Neolithic or the early Bronze Age. Uh, it's uh, found all the way across Scotland. Um, you also find it across the British Isles and similar uh, motifs are found in Spain and Portugal. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a really interesting field to be working in. I'm really lucky to be a part of it. And as I say, I'm out there recording, making 3D models, taking photographs. It's cold and wet and miserable, but it's absolutely wonderful. And I've seen some of this already. Um, It looks amazing. I'll put a link up on the site as well and on Twitter. But in the future, would you come and talk to us about that maybe? I would love to. Absolutely love to. Well, brilliant. And thank you as always to the brilliant, intrepid Maya for coming and telling us all about her project. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always wonderful to talk to you. So I feel like me and Maya kind of dominated that conversation. No, no, it was fine. You had really good questions. And honestly, I'm on the mic quite a bit. So it was nice to just sit and listen and occasionally come in with stupid pop culture references. (laughs) This is my favorite part. So it was great. So you will be able to find all of these upcoming links on the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. The article is entitled... Ava, a beaker-associated woman from a kiss at Akavanic Highland and the story of her rediscovery and subsequent study. This was authored by Maya Houle and Alison Sheridan and a whole host of others who have worked on this project over the years. It was published in the Proceedings of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, and it's won the prestigious RBK Stevenson Award, which is given to articles that meet the highest quality in the Societies of Antiquaries of Scotland Journal. Say that three times really fast. Oh, it's really hard. This is also the very first time a DNA report has appeared on PSAS. This article is open access and can be read by anybody who wants to, thanks to the support from the Historic Environment of Scotland. Again, you can get that link directly on the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. And once again, as we mentioned, the DNA analysis of Ava was part of a broader project on ancient DNA, the results of which were published to Nature earlier this year. You can find a link to all of this on the website. 
We are also throwing up a link to the Ava website. Please do actually click through and go have a look for yourself. Maya has put up a bunch of beautiful illustrations and she walks you through every point that we've discussed here in the podcast. It's an amazing resource. And speaking of sites, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and you can find links to all of our social media groups by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.